A number of years ago, Sabine and I had an opportunity to travel to Orlando, Florida. One evening, we're walking around, and we're looking for a place to eat dinner. And I'd heard of this place called the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Anyone heard of it? <laughs> and one of the unique features of the Cheesecake Factory is not just their immense selection of cheesecake, but their immense selection of absolutely everything. When we walked in and we were seated, we were handed the menus, which felt in size closer to our pew Bibles rather than a, a normal menu. It was 21 pages thick. It was huge. It had 250 items on the menu. It took me 10 minutes just to flip through the menu to try and figure out what was there. They had over 30 times of burgers. It was unbelievable. And all the way as I kept reading this menu, I kept asking myself and Sabine, what am I hungry for? What are we hungry for? What are we hungry for? And in the end, what do you think I got? No consensus. Great. I got a salad. <laughs> Some of you just not, I'm so disappointed, Craig. <laughs> Cheeseburgers and you got a salad? It's true. In the moment, I really was hungry for a burger. I really wanted a burger. But in the long run, I knew that Sabine and I had a big next day ahead of us. And so even though in the moment I was hungry for a burger, I knew that in the long run, I was really hungrier for adventure. And I really wanted to have a good next day together. I needed something that would fuel me, not just in the moment, but for a long day ahead. Something that would help me to be resilient for our adventure and our journey together the next day. And so I picked a salad. We live kind of in the cheesecake factory of culture, don't we? We have so many different opportunities afforded to us. But as followers of Jesus, as people who know God, what are the things that we're hungry for that won't only please us in the moment, but will help us to be resilient and fuel us for the journey ahead in our faith? We're in a sermon series here at 10th called Resilient Faith, where we're looking at different people in the Bible and we're asking ourselves through looking at their lives, what are the parts of their lives that help them to have a resilient faith, a faith that lasts, especially during difficult situations. And today we'll be looking at the life of Esther and we'll see how for Esther, fasting was a resilient practice that helped to sustain her in a difficult times. Helps her heart to ring with God. <laughs> Before I read the passage, let me set up the context uh, for all of us. The book of Esther follows the main character, the main person named Esther, who wins a beauty pageant and as a result becomes the queen of Persia. Persia at the time was the most powerful nation in the world, so she essentially wins a contest of Persia's Got Talent, or Persia's Next Top Model. And as a result, she becomes the queen of Persia. It's pretty amazing to consider. And when she becomes the queen of Persia, her cousin named Mordecai learns of a plot within Persia to kill all of the Jews within Persia. And so he advocates to Esther for her to use her royal position to advocate to the king, her husband, that he would... Uh, put an end to this plot. 
Now, Esther is initially hesitant because there's a royal law that the only people who could approach the king without being invited are a few male noblemen, essentially the right-hand men to the king. That even Esther, though she is the queen of Persia and the wife of King Xerxes, is not allowed by law to approach the king without an invitation. To do so is literally to risk your own life. The only way that anyone would be spared if they approached the king without invitation was for the king to extend the royal scepter to them, essentially an offer of peace. And so Esther hesitates to get involved in the plot and to approach her husband, the king, to advocate on behalf of the, the Jews, knowing not only that it could risk her power, her privilege, her position, but it very well could risk her life. The text also says that King Xerxes hadn't asked the queen, Queen Esther, to approach her for over 30 days. And so in the text, there's almost an undercurrent of questioning, has Esther by this point come out of favor with the king? So the danger for Esther is real. When Esther, or when Mordecai hears of Esther's hesitancy to get involved, Mordecai writes again to Esther, and this is when we read the following, our passage for today, beginning in Esther 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your, family, your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for Esther, for her courageous example of how to lean into you through fasting, to pay attention to your voice and your presence in a desperate situation. We pray that through her example and through your word that you speak to us today, that we'll learn what it means to build a resilience of faith that can last both in good times and difficult ones too. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the book of Esther outlines a real dangerous and dark situation for Esther. Mordecai appeals to her, but she is hesitant to engage, but then eventually agrees to advocate on behalf of her husband, the king, for the Jews. So Esther makes up her mind to approach the king and tells Mordecai, what is her master plan? What is her great master plan with her life and actually hundreds, if not thousands, of other life lives on the line? 
She doesn't gather all the noblemen and her attendants and do a strategic planning meeting. No, she fasts. She engages in a time of fasting herself and with her attendants and asks Mordecai and the Jews of Susa to pray with her. That leads to the question of why. Of all the things that Esther could do, why fasting? And what is fasting? Adele Calhoun wrote the book called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And in it, she offers, I think, one of the best definitions of what fasting is and what it isn't. In the handbook, Adele Calhoun writes this. Fasting is not a magical way to manipulate God into doing our will. It's not a way to get uh, God to be an accomplice in our plans. Neither is fasting a spiritual way to lose weight or to control others. Fasting clears us out and opens us up to intentionally seeking God's will and grace in a way that goes beyond the normal habits of worship and prayer. And it brings us face to face with the hunger at the core of our being. So fasting is ultimately about a bringing an intentionality and an attentiveness into our relationship and our listening to God and coming face to face with the hungers that are the core of our being. So it literally opens us up to become more attentive to listening to God. As we start to talk about fasting from food, I think there might be two groups here that are a little bit hesitant to go further. The first one says, you know, Craig, I'm not really into fasting. I prefer feasting. (laughs) Fasting is for those super spiritual people like Pastor Ken, not me. And if that's you, I hear you. But fasting, as Adele Calhoun points out, is not ultimately about food. It's not ultimately about our stomachs, but about our hearts. It's about creating intentionality and openness in our relationship with God. It's not for some super spiritual person, but for anyone who hopes to listen to God's voice any day, and especially in difficult seasons and times of discernment. Fasting literally opens up our lives to bring attentiveness to our relationship with God. I think many of us can relate to that. The second group maybe has a sense of hesitancy around fasting from food because of a complicated medical history. And if that's you, I can connect with that. I've had an iron deficiency for um, a number of years that for quite a long time had kept me from engaging in a fasting from food. And so if that's you, then you may want to consult your doctor before fasting. Or if you have a complicated history around food, if that's you, then you too might want to engage with your doctor before engaging in a fasting around food. But as we learned, fasting is ultimately more about bringing attentiveness to our relationship with God. And there are many ways that we can fast, not just fasting from food to help to do this, as we'll find in a little bit. And so today we'll see, and we'll look at the ways that fasting can help to build a resilience of faith, to help to build a resilient hunger for God, and second, a resilient hunger for God's justice in the world and for others.
So let's look first at the ways that fasting cultivates a resilient hunger for God. In the text, we're told that Esther has already committed herself, as we said, to approaching the king, but she still fasts. What is it that happens when we fast? What are the ways that, practically speaking, fasting opens us up and brings attentiveness and attention into our relationship with God? Well, the first and really the most practical way is it opens up space in our day to attend and pay attention and focus in on God. When we fast, we literally save time that we would have spent grocery shopping or cooking a meal or eating that we can spend in scripture or in prayer. When I began to fast, I would give my 30-minute lunch break and I would go for a prayer walk or I'd read an extended passage of scripture. And it would literally give me an extra time of reading and engaging and attending to God within my day. So fasting creates space in our schedules to create intentionality and to build relationship with God. The second thing it does is it creates space in our bodies to pay attention to God, to bring attention to our relationship with him. That when we fast, the blood and energy that would otherwise be used to digest the food in our stomachs can be utilized by the rest of our body. And so in the seasons when I've done a 24-hour fast, there are definitely times when I feel distracted, even hangry. But generally speaking, I'm much more attentive and aware to the things that I'm doing, especially in my relationship with God. In those times of fasting, when I'm going for a prayer walk or engaging in scripture, those are some for me, the most intimate, close and attentive times in my relationship with God. So fasting literally creates space in our schedules, in our bodies, in order to bring greater attentiveness into our relationship with God. And no doubt for Esther, who's entering into a very dangerous situation, she's wanting to open herself up to listen and to be attentive for the road ahead. Even though she's already committed to approaching the king, seek wisdom. Lord, how do we do this in a way that will both save my life and the life of many others? So it literally creates space to become more attentive to God. But for Esther especially, perhaps the greatest thing that it did, it forced her to come face to face with the things that she is hungry for. Esther would have had to ask herself, am I more hungry to keep my, power, my position of power and privilege or am I more hungry to identify myself as belonging to God and to his people? The biblical writer essentially goes out of their way to make clear that up to this point, Esther has not had to identify herself as a Jew, as one of God's people. She would have been the queen of Persia and as the queen of Persia, she would have attended to the cultural and religious practices of any other Persian. And as one biblical commentator says, for the very first time in her life, as the queen of Persia, she would have had to make a very difficult decision. What am I hungrier for? Am I hungrier to keep my power of my place of position, of power, of privilege as the queen of Esther? Or to risk my life and my position to identify myself as one of God's people? And as someone who belongs to God, there was very real risk that if Esther didn't lose her life, 
she very well could lose her position. What was Esther hungry for? As one biblical commentator says, fasting reveals what controls us. Another way of saying this is fasting reveals what we are hungriest for in life. Many of you know that I didn't grow up in the church. And when I became a follower of Jesus, one of the things that I was introduced to is fasting. And I was introduced to fasting as a practice where we give up something good, namely food, to attend to something better, namely God. And as I began the practice of fasting, the first number of months I actually found were great. As I mentioned earlier, they became some of the richest, most attentive times in my relationship with God. I found a focus and attention during my times of prayer and times of scripture reading that I didn't generally find throughout the rest of the week. There were times of life and closeness in my relationship with God. But over time, that began to wane and it became increasingly difficult to continue to engage those full 30 minutes in time of fasting prayer um, or fasting reading scripture. At the time I was engaged in reading, uh, or sorry, I was studying at Regent College full-time and I was also working two part-time jobs to pay for Regent and I was a youth leader. And all of this work that was on my, my schedule, I felt this great pressure to continue to end my fast early or end my prayer time early, that 30 minutes that I dedicated to prayer and to attentiveness with God. There was the healthy part of myself that went, God's not gonna miss if you break your fasting prayer or scripture early, but you could use your time for something more productive. Writing a paper, you're only a student for a certain season, go and write a paper. Go and plan youth for tonight, write a message that you're gonna preach. Do something productive. And the other half of myself, perhaps the more honest side and also the more broken side, rehearsed the lie that when I break my fast early, when I break my fasting prayer and scripture time early, I'm rehearsing the lie that it's only when I'm productive and I'm achieving something that I'm valued by others. At the core of my being, I really wanted to bring value and, and to bring gifts from my life and my time for others. I wanted to write good papers to become a good theologian and pastor. I wanted to write good sermons and care well for our youth. I wanted to do good work in my part-time jobs. And so the unhealthy part of myself, which was the primary driver, kept rehearsing the lie every time I broke my 30 minutes of prayer or 30 minute scripture reading that I was doing during fasting, every time I broke that early, I was rehearsing the lie that you're only valued when you have something productive to offer others. It was when I was in the Arrow Leadership Program that I learned about the cycle of grief and the cycle of grace. The cycle of grief is, we can see up here on the screen just a second. It begins with our achievement. It begins with our productivity. It begins with what we do. And through what we do, we seek to find an identity in what we offer to others, in our achievements and in our productivity. And through that, a sense of drivenness when our identity is attached to our achievement. And from there, we try and seek and gain acceptance in what we do for others. And then the kicker is it starts all over again. 
Our identity is what we are rooted in what we can do for others. Our value is what we can achieve and the ways that we can be productive for others outside of us. And we seek to find our identity and our acceptance in what we do. And it starts again and again and again. And the truth is that we can never do enough in order to find acceptance and to find identity in other people. But the cycle of grace, on the other hand, begins where the cycle of grace ends or the cycle of grief ends. The cycle of grief the cycle of grace begins with our acceptance. It begins with the fact that we are accepted and loved and we belong to God. And when we find our rooting in that place, we are sustained. And we find our identity as one of God's people. And from there, there's still an outward component, but it's not achievement or productivity, it's fruitfulness. That like a tree who finds its streams in living waters of God's love, that we are free to produce fruit, not grounded out of a sense of anxiety that we need to be productive and achieve for the sake of others to earn that sense of acceptance, to earn that sense of identity. But when we find our identity in God, when we are accepted by him and we belong to him, we are free, free to find fruitfulness in our lives. And in those times when I stayed in my 30 minutes, my fasting prayer, my fasting prayer walk, my fasting scripture, I rehearsed the truth that my identity isn't ultimately as someone who needs to be productive to offer value to others, but my identity is grounded in God's love. And whether I am productive or not, that identity and that acceptance is secure. What are the places in your own life where you are seeking to find your acceptance and your identity? What are the things that are seeking to control you and to invite you into a cycle of grief rather than a cycle of grace? If you're a student, maybe it's your marks or whether you'll get into a postdoctoral program or the kind of employment you'll get hired into. If you're single, maybe it's who you're dating or the person you'll marry. Or if you're parents, it's your children. Wherever it is, where are the places where you're seeking to root your identity and your belonging and your acceptance in the cycle of grief rather than the cycle of grace? The practice of fasting invites us to let go of that and instead to root our identity in God's acceptance and love. It's for this reason that I took up a different kind of fasting called a Sabbath. A 24-hour fast from productive work in my own life in order to root my identity and my person as belonging in God rather than what I achieve and what I do for others. That when we talk about fasting, we do often talk about food and that's an important part of fasting. But fasting is also an umbrella term that involves other things. And we can practice different kinds of fastings that allow us, instead of rehearsing the lie that we are ultimately only valued when we're productive or when we achieve something, but that we are valued and loved and accepted because we are rooted in God's love and belong to him. And for me, fasting from productive work through a Sabbath was one of the ways that I allowed myself 
to rehearse the truth that I belong to God and I'm already accepted by him before any productive work that I do. And frees me up from a non-anxious place to be fruitful, to give my life to God and for the sake of others. And so fasting creates a resiliency of faith because it literally creates space in our lives, in our schedule and in our bodies. And it helps us to come face to face with the question of what am I truly hungry for in life? And second, fasting creates a resiliency of faith because it invites us into God's justice for others. It creates a hunger for God's justice and for those who are in need. Now I acknowledge that in the passage, justice isn't the primary driver for Esther's own fast, but justice is an outcome of her fast and of her listening to God. We're told that Esther, a person of power and privilege in the empire was invited to put her power, her privilege and her life at risk for the sake of others who are in a dark and desperate situation and who are in deep need. As one biblical commentator writes, Esther, for the first time in her life, as I mentioned earlier, for the first time in her life, is putting her life on, on the line. Is she going to identify as the queen of Persia or is she going to identify as one who belongs to God? And in doing so, she is risking her life and she's risking her position for the sake of others. And justice and when we listen to God, we hear what's on God's heart and on his mind. We begin to see that justice is at the very core of God's identity and what he is inviting us to in the world. In an important passage, Micah 6.8, God says this through the, the prophet Micah. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, that justice is at the very core of God's identity. And when we spend time listening to God and being attentive to him, we can't help but catch God's heart for others. And this is what we see in the early church. In the early church, the regular rhythm of fasting and the deep connection between fasting and justice. In an early church document, in fact, one of the most important non-biblical church documents, so the early church documents that aren't the, the gospels or the letters that are found in our Bibles, there's a document called the Didache, in Greek literally meaning the teaching. It was an early teaching document of the church. And it says that everyone who follows Jesus, the early Christians, it's not saying when they fast or if they fast, it says when they fast that they were to fast every Wednesday and Thursday until 3 p.m., that the early church was in this regular rhythm of fasting. And we also know from another document called the Shepherd of Hermas, again, another important document in the life of the early church that didn't make it into our canonical Bibles. This is what the Shepherd of Hermas says, connecting the practice of fasting to justice. In the day in which you fast, you will taste nothing but bread and water. And having reckoned up the price of the dishes of the day, which you intended to have eaten, you will give it to a widow or an orphan or to some person in want. So essentially what the shepherd of Hermas is saying is, 
In the morning when you wake up, you'll tally the cost of your caramel macchiato, your breakfast with a friend, and your lunch with a colleague, and maybe your afternoon coffee as well, and you'll add them all up, and you'll use the money that you saved in that time to bless someone in need, to give it as an act of justice for those who are in need. That when we listen to God and spend time to him and are attentive to him, as the early church did, we are propelled into acts of justice for others. And fasting not only creates space in our schedules and in our bodies, it creates space in our budgets to act justly and to live love towards those who are in need. When I was a student at UBC, I knew that if I fasted, and I would usually do a fast from uh, the evening before, I'd have dinner, I wouldn't have any snacks or dessert that night, and then uh, I would miss breakfast and lunch and um, would eat dinner, but I'd do about a 23-hour fast. And I would save up what I had spent or what I had saved through missing those two meals, or if I'd planned to have a coffee, I would save that up. And that would be a part of the, the tithe that I would offer. When I knew that I had so little to offer financially because I was a student, that was one of the ways that I could seek to carve out generosity in my budget. By giving up a few meals, I could seek to be generous by those who needed. By choosing to be hungry, I could empathize and be generous with those who do not choose to be hungry. And when we fast, it creates a sense of empathy. When we choose to create hunger within our bodies, we learn to empathize with those who do not choose to be hungry. I was a youth leader for many years and we used to do something called the 30-hour famine at our, my previous church. We would invite the, the kids the night before to fast from dinner and then all night and then through breakfast and lunch. And we would all gather in the evening at the church and it was pretty fun. We'd load them up on sugary drinks, but we wouldn't eat anything. And then we would uh, sleep at the church that night. And to be honest, there was very little sleeping, mostly playing and hanging out. And then the next morning we would feast and we would party. But the purpose of doing the 30 hour famine was not to play with the kids and have fun and build deep relationships, though that did happen. The purpose was for our youth to learn that when we create hunger in our bodies, that we generate empathy for those who do not choose to be hungry. That we wanted those to, them to empathize with those in our city and in the world who do not choose to go hungry at night. And so too for us, when we hunger, we generate within ourselves an empathy for those who do not choose to be hungry. And we create spaces in our budgets to be generous. And we create an attentiveness in our lives to draw close to God. And so fasting creates within us a resilient faith, a resilient hunger for God through creating space in our schedules, in our bodies, inviting us into the big question of what are we truly hungry for in life? And then it also creates space in our budget and in our hearts to be hungry for God's people and to be hungry for justice that fasting creates within us a resilient hunger for God and for others. And this is what we see in the life of Jesus, that we need a resilient faith, not only for when things are going well, but for when things are difficult. Because one of the unique factors that I haven't mentioned yet about the book of Esther 
is that nowhere in the book are the words God or prayer explicitly mentioned. When you read it, it seems like God's all over the page and that they're doing prayer all throughout. But nowhere is the words God or prayer explicitly mentioned. And we need a resilient faith. We need a practice of drawing close to God and being attentive to him and fasting towards him, not only for when the times we want to experience more joy and life in our relationship with him, but for the times in our lives when we feel like the book of Esther, when we feel the hiddenness of God, when we struggle to find God on the pages of our life, we need a resilient faith, not only to bring more joy and life into the good times, but also to help us to trust that when God feels hidden, that he's not absent. And in the life of Jesus, this is what we see. He begins his ministry life with 40 days of 40 nights of fasting and prayer, opening himself in attentiveness to God, drawing close to him, drawing an intimacy towards God and building a resiliency of faith. And even though Jesus had spent this time in fasting prayer, building this resiliency, he's still on the cross. Jesus, God himself, who was one with God the Father, felt the hiddenness of God. On the cross, as he took on the weight of our sin and our alienation from God, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God himself, one with God the Father, felt the hiddenness of God. But he also trusted, even though he felt that God was hidden, that God was not absent. And not only went to the cross, but to his death for our sake. And three days later, embodied the truth that God was present, even in the hiddenness. As God raised Jesus' dead body back to life through the resurrection living the promise that even though Jesus felt the hiddenness of God, that he was not absent. Where do you feel the hiddenness of God today? Where are you feeling the hiddenness of God today? In your marriage? In an important relationship? In a health challenge for you or for a friend or someone close to you, through infertility or somewhere else, where are you feeling the hiddenness of God today? We need a resilient faith. A faith that lasts. A faith that promises, just as Jesus does to us today, that even when God feels hidden, that God is not absent. That Jesus, when he gave his life on the cross, showed that God, even when he feels hidden to us, is not absent. And when we feel his hiddenness, that actually we are surrounded by him. And that one day we too will feel resurrection and newness of life. We will feel the promises that when we feel that God is hidden, that he is not absent. Wherever you feel the hiddenness of God, God is there. Wherever you feel the hiddenness of God, Jesus is there. 
Wherever you feel the hiddenness of God, you are surrounded by him. You can place your identity and your trust in a God who gave his own life for you on the cross so that you could know that just as he went through a season of hiddenness, that God will not be absent in your seasons of hiddenness too. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the book of Esther. These beautiful, courageous woman, Esther, who entered into this difficult and dark situation for behalf of others. Trusting that even though you are hidden, that you are not absent. That God, you surrounded Esther with your presence and with your love and with your grace. And so you do that to us too. Even in our hidden places, you surround us. You give us strength and resiliency for the journey ahead. We are surrounded by you. Amen.